Hello, Aaron. Uh, this is Aaron Litwin, another Aaron. It'd be very confusing for me to talk to two Aaron's. <laughs> Hi, Aaron. Hi, Ellie. Thank you yeah. for inviting me. It's a yeah. treat to be here so um, far. <laughs> we'll um, see how it goes. Really after. <laughs> just for the viewers, could you just explain uh, who you are, what you do, and Sure. So, hi um, everyone. My name is Aaron Litwin. Um, I guess I'm a man of many different hats. Um, first of all, I think I like to think I'm a family man, I'm trying to be a good husband and parent, father. First and foremost. First and foremost, to my four gorgeous girls, or perhaps I should say first, I try to be a good Jew. What Between your wife? the. What about your wife? What about my wife? What about her? <laughs> <laughs> You'd have to ask her what she thinks. I'd like to think I, I try to be a good husband. Um, and uh, yeah, a good Jew. I think that those are those are core values to me. Um, I'm a sensitive person, I'd like to think. Um, and I guess I do a bunch of different stuff. So I work as a rabbi in Seed. Um, Seed is an outreach organization. And um, so a big part of my day is, is there running programs, showing people the beauty of, of Yiddishkeit, of Judaism. Um, and then, oh, what else do I do? I work as a psychotherapist, so see people, um, try to, I, I actually, um, I, I do practice cognitive behavioral therapy, I'm happy to be more exact about different elements of what each thing is, but I, I, I would consider myself a person-centered therapist in most, which is, person-centered therapy really believes that each one of us have the answers and the way forward within, just sometimes we get tangled in, in day-to-day stress and day-to-day worries and day-to-day problems and we can't think straight for ourselves. And I'd like to think that my role is, you know, there's this model of teaching, like what they call old-school teaching and modern-day teaching. It's basically old-school teaching is like a big, massive circle at the top with like a little pipsqueak circle at the bottom and like there's the teacher and he knows everything and then there's like the, 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 the kid who's like the dot. And modern day teaching model is very much, there's almost three circles. There's the teacher, and there's the student, and then there's information. The teacher's literally a link trying to share the information with the student rather than being totalitarian and, you know, sort of domineering. And I very much perceive myself, look, the role of a a rabbi and an educator in Judaism is different to that, and I'm happy to discuss that as well. But my role as a psychotherapist, I'd like very much see myself as someone who's trying to enable the other person to, to, to find the answers within them rather than to teach them. Of course, there's skills and there's stuff we come along, there's some stuff we come across along the way, but I really believe in that the light is within and, and, and people have that within them. And then there's other stuff as well. I, I, I do a Dirishu share in the evening. It's a, a Shulchanach, Mishnah Burra share every night. Um, I actually now switch. I do alternate weeks with my brother. It was getting much for me talking. We spoke before recording about saying no. And he was getting much, and I didn't want to leave go, so we came to a good compromise. Um, I have a little organization I run with two wonderful ladies called McKinney, where we give support to um, the assignment. People who have been bereaved of a parent, um, something that I experienced early on in my life. I lost my father as a teenager. And... Um, if anything else comes up, I'll share. You know, like I say, man of many different uh, different stuff, working on something interesting now at the moment. We'll see if that takes off. Trying to teach um, emotional well-being in the schools, in the high schools. It's a project I really believe in, and it's something at the very preliminary stages to the point I don't even want to talk too much because, like, rather than be a talker, let's see it happen first. But, yeah, that's... That is a lot of things. Okay. Uh, let's break that down. So, first of all, the emotional well-being thing. I need to talk to you after that. Sounds really interesting. Um, okay, Ellie. <laughs> and the second I one knew you, that was coming. I'm going to make a note of that. And, the father, the father, the father and Eddie makes a note. He will be calling me. <laughs> this is not just a note. Yeah. Definitely. And also, you mentioned something about your father's death. Are you able to. Do you want to expand on that? Whatever you want to go with it, Eddie. My father's death. I, I was a teenager at the time. I was 17 years old. I was in, um, I was in Yeshiva. I was learning in Gates of Yeshiva at the time. Um. Yeshiva's like a college. Yeshiva's a college, yeah, okay, I apologise, I'm not I'm not sure who the audience is, I guess it's a broad audience, I was in sort of a Jewish Talmudic college, a very sort of a niche college for religious ultra-Orthodox Jews, um, and uh, in Gateshead, and um, yeah, right by Newcastle. It was a Friday morning, uh, my father passed away suddenly, without any 
any Not warning. Those signs are... No, he was good old. He was a good, healthy man. I mean, look, he had his ailments and stuff, and you know, uh, but nothing that would give warning that he was about to pass on. Um, I was actually studying in a very sort of remote sort of study hall um, with a friend of mine. It was a whole situation when the call came through, they couldn't find me. They had to send out a search party of like 20, 30 students that actually locate me. They didn't know where I was. Um, and then, yeah, it was um, it was a journey. I remember my mum telling me the actual news when I was actually in the station. I knew there was something wrong, so I had to go to get a train home. And when I was actually in the train station, um, I got through to my mum, uh, my mother, and she she told me she told me what was um, what had happened. Um, still hear the words clearly in my eye, in my ears today, um, and that was, I guess, the start of a new journey. It was, it's, it's, it's not been the same since my father was. I don't say this because he's gone. He was my best friend, and not in like a friendly way that I, I respected him. I could count on one hand the amount of times I was uh, disrespectful to him in my life. Uh, so much respect. He was my hero. Um, yeah, and it's, it's. I can't say it's been the same. It's been now coming up actually. This Sunday will be 16, I think it's 16 years, I think 16 years um, since he's passed on. And um, it's been a journey, what can I say? When you first heard your mother tell you about that, how, what was the reaction to that, especially when you was, and all the weeks coming after that, how, how did that feel? Great question. So, the initial reaction, um, I screamed, I, was, I remember I was bang in the middle of Newcastle train station, um, and I just... Obviously, I'd heard there was something wrong, and my head was bracing in that sort of drama, and you don't know what to expect, and you know, freaking out. But when she actually said it to me, the words she used was, "She said, Daddy collapsed this morning, and there's a Leviathan this afternoon." Oh, it was intense. Um, I literally, I just started screaming, like sobbing, screaming. Um, and then some lady from the train station came over because she thought I was like a lunatic, and she wanted to like deal with me. And I was with a rabbi who sort of said, "Filter in," and said, "Give him his space." It was literally like your world collapsing in a minute. It was, um, yeah, it was uh, shock, trauma. And it's funny because there was obviously an instant shock, but um, it's in no way prepares you what was coming in the weeks and months to come. I actually make an effort. I'm not great about this. I don't like to, but to go into a shiver house, that's a house where someone has been um, passed on and the, the bereaved are sitting there, um, to go the week not the week right after the person's passed on because in Jewish law there's the shiva and people will be, will be going then um, but I try to go the week after that when they don't have anyone when they don't have anyone I, I try to go for the shiva too but I try to, to, to follow up then because I think for me personally the hardest week was the week after the shiva not the shiva itself shiva itself was I couldn't it was too hard to think there was so much going on but the week after that I remember just throwing up every day depressed and, and really down I think my Brothers sort of forced me to go back to yeshiva to the college. It was a good thing at the time, um, and um, I think my emotions about grief are sort of like a big package that are like deep in my heart. And at different times and stages in my life, when I feel a safe space, I sort of process them more. And I don't actually think I finished that package yet. I think there's still more to unravel. And as I go through my life, I try to unravel it. We're not always. And I, I can tell you this is, as a therapist and someone who's you know deals with a lot of people's emotional journey, we're not always ready to deal with and to unpack everything that we have to, to process at one time, and it's a journey. It's been a journey. It is a journey. We're on the journey. Yeah, not very nice, that. Uh, how did you kind of deal with the weeks after? Because you obviously say you were depressed, but was there anything that you could kind of turn to to deal with those emotions? It's an interesting question. So, oh, there's so many angles to it. Um, I I think the weeks after were survival. You know, there's obviously we could talk about the years after. The weeks after were just survival. I was adamant to be What's normal. You didn't want to do anything. Or? No, no, no. I just wanted to be normal. I I didn't want to be um, looked at as someone who's. You know, I didn't want people's sorrow. I didn't want people's pity. I was adamant not to get pity. I remember going to shul afterwards and. This seventy-year-old man offered me his place. Sweet guy, he's unfortunately not with us anymore. And I was like, no, don't give me. Was that you in, in a bit of denial then? That absolutely, didn't... absolutely. If you actually research the five stages of grief, I don't know if you're familiar, but the first stage is denial. Yeah. I probably was even pre-denial. 
I was just in shock and I was probably in pre-denial and I was just didn't want to I, I was afraid to lose being normal and I just wanted to be normal and I went into sort of an autopilot mode for some time of just doing the robotic things that I needed to do to be normal those pressures that come afterwards you have to dive and you have to be the chazan you have to lead the service the prayers and there's stuff to do and I, I went into a certain autopilot of just trying to survive often when the autopilot turns off so when the autopilot turned off I, I will say this I do feel blessed to Baruch Hashem have a, a really good relationship with family members a really good relationship with my mother and um, I guess I've always had a good friend or two along the way which it's another thing to speak about when people are, are lonely and isolated it's very difficult and I think so often I talk about kids, teenagers, adults I think this is something actually it's on it's actually on my mind now at the moment from a family situation I'm not going to discuss in detail because it's not my place to say but when people don't feel they have one relationship, one person they can turn to the world can seem like a very black place and I would actually encourage people to try to be brave to find that person because it may not be the person you think it will be but there are people out there who listen. You know, I, I feel like I'm sitting in a room with people, two people who would, who would be available to care. And I think there's no greater soothing than actually just having someone listen to you. People think, you know, to come back to psychotherapy, people think it's about having answers. And I, I think, I don't know if I said enough in the introduction, of course you do need skills and there's a need for that sort of thing, but never underestimate the power of a friend or just someone to talk to. It could be someone older, it could be a mentor, it could be someone who's got a little bit life experience, someone who... They themselves may understand what it means to be sensitive from their own experience. And I think, I do feel somewhat blessed that throughout my life I've had, I've had times when I've been alone as well, I had times in school when I struggled very much socially and felt isolated um, as well. Um, and I think it's a big part of what moulded me. But I think in that journey, there was always people who I could turn to and be real with. And even if in, in the regular setting of the study hall, I was just you know, putting it on and being brave, I was able to climb into that place where I could just share and be real, and I think that's really what helped me through it. Am I the same question I've asked? Anything to do? So Ask whatever you want. Anything. 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 Whatever you want. How's your relationship with religion after that? Okay, I wasn't expecting that. Okay. <laughs> um, how was my relationship yeah, after that? I'll say it as it is. I, I, I came here with intention to say things as they are. I tried to say things as they are. So you're asking how my relationship was with religion. It's a difficult question to answer. Um, and I'm comfortable to say that, you know, people ask me what the shiver was like, and more than the physical fatigue of getting up and everything, I, I used to, I described it instantly as an emotional roller coaster, and I would call it a spiritual roller coaster as well. I can't tell you how many people came in to tell me ideas, the Torah concepts of how it's Bashar, that means it's divinely, divinely ordained. Be bothered, I did not want to hear it. So Genuinely, what did you want? What did I want from them? Because it is a very awkward situation. You go into somewhere where someone's just lost maybe the closest person to them. And, you know, very, you don't really know what to say. It, it does. The one thing I would say to anyone listening is never underestimate the power of silence. I was in a shiver house a couple of months ago, someone who'd lost their father. And I was sitting at the back quietly. Um, I made eye contact with the person, they acknowledged me with a nod, and I acknowledged them. And someone actually came over to me. I found it quite humorous because I've been in this situation unfortunately many times I, I try to go to as many shivers as I can and the guy came over to me and said you're the type of guy that should be up there chatting and telling him stuff and I just politely smiled and he didn't he didn't let go <laughs> he just got, he said get up and go there and he meant well I, I, I believe in I believe in the inner beauty of people. I really do. I there's I can't tell you anyone I know that I think has an evil core. I just no, no, I, I do agree. <coughs> most, at, at nearly everyone, even if they do the wrong thing, yeah. they think that is right and the right thing to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. There's a whole separate debate. People do think that there is innate evil in the world, and yeah. I haven't I haven't come across it. There, there probably is one or two people that. Yeah. Possibly there yeah. are some people who struggle, but I, I in my day to day interactions, yeah. I've come across people who have done some things that may be very painful and evil to others. But in themselves, they wouldn't consider themselves evil. That's a great yeah. debate. But coming back to my relationship with religion, um, it was very much a roller coaster. And um, 
I think rollercoaster right well. And I would say this, I think there has been fractures in my relationship with Hashem since then. And some have healed over time and some probably haven't. And I, I'm a big believer that it's important. Hashem knows our innermost thoughts. I do believe in Hashem, clearly. And I don't think I've ever had a time that I haven't. I think what it means to believe in Hashem is a whole discussion. I, I don't have 100% clarity, confidence in my life. Hashem is here right now. It's something I, I'm working on and I have my better days and worse days. I personally think that's our purpose in this world, is to have that struggle. You know, is he there? Is he not there? Why can't I see him? Why can't I feel him? Why, is, why am I feeling so rubbish? Why am I going through such a difficult time? But um, the point I want to say is, is my relationship with Hashem has become in a way more real where I feel comfortable to be angry with Hashem, to, to, to ask, to say, what's this about? I think... I, I grew up in a place where you couldn't be upset, like Hashem, he knows everything. And But actually, I heard once a great um, story. I love this story. I don't know if I've ever shared this with you, but I, I love this story. Um, it was a big, this was actually a big, you know, in the, in, to answer your question quite directly, this was a big moment of clarity for me. Um, the story was told of a father who was driving dangerously, really dangerously, and um, irresponsibly, he was speeding and, I'll just say this, like anyone, young people listening, it's so not worth it. I, I lost two friends in a car crash, two of my closest friends, um, because of, you know, it's just not necessary. Like, don't do it for, for the for the two-minute thrill. It was like me and Bitch, you just... It was, it was my, um, it was actually the same year my father passed away. Yeah. So I was 17. We were in Yeshiva, it was a summer camp, and there was a car accident, and uh, two of them, Shimi Adla, and Avram Dov Tashnik, two... You know, sometimes there's this concept after the people pass away, they're like, they were amazing. They were amazing people. Um, two close friends, one lived down the road from me, one was a classmate. Um, and yeah, they they, uh, they were lifted up, they passed away in the car accident. So just don't speed. But in this story, it's a fictitious story. The, the father was driving irresponsibly and um, he crashed. And the son was critically injured taken to hospital and they realized he was in a coma um, and um, the doctors basically weren't sure what the prognosis would be and they took the kid and the father paid for the best private medical care the bill was thousands of dollars and the father wouldn't leave the child's bedside one day passed two days passed a week two weeks three weeks a month two months three months the father would not leave the child's bedside and the nurses were already amazed they were like listen we've seen situations like this go home have a shower Okay, whatever, but they were like, go home, and he wouldn't, and it was a year, two years passed, this father didn't leave, he paid for the best care, they brought in the best doctors, he wouldn't leave the bedside, and after two years, one day the child opened his eyes and woke up, and he saw the father sitting by his bedside, and he saw his father, he knew, he remembered what had happened, and he started screaming at his father, why did you drive like that, look what you've done to me, I've been bedridden for two years, aggressively having a go at him, and the nurse walked in and she said, listen, you can't speak to your father that way. You don't realize what he's just given the last two years. That Yeah, he may have made a mistake, but for the last two years, he's given blood, sweat, toil. He hasn't been home. And the father said to the nurse, child, I don't care what he's saying. I'm just happy he's talking to me. And I think any father who's feeling disconnected from his child, they just want to speak to their child. And I think we're sometimes afraid in our relationship with Hashem to be upset with him or to tell him that we're hurt or we're angry. We're, 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 we're brought up, you know, has to be perfect I think no I actually think Hashem wants to hear from me and and I think that's very much my relationship I, I try to be real with him and I have days when I'm feeling good with him and I have days when I have to say to him listen it's a grumpy morning and I think it's about being real and being honest with yourself and that's what I would say well, very touching yeah, still. thank you Ali um, so dad and two close friends dad and Yeah, yeah. Um, it's hard. I've never thought of it like that before. It just came up now that they also passed away. They were lifted then. I've never really thought of it like that. I don't look at it. I look at my dad as one story and my friends as another story. I just being honest and saying it as it is, you know. Everyone's got their journey, you know. It's funny. I remember when I was running a trip in Poland in Auschwitz and people asked me there, where was God in the Holocaust? And I said, I, you know, it's dramatize this but my, my, the crux of my answer was I said to them I said look 
you ask that question, does it really bother you or does it bother you why a show doesn't make you richer or why your child's struggling? And they were honest with me, you know, I try to be real with people, they're real back normally and they acknowledge that ultimately, you know, in some things you, you know, we care more about paper cuts than and my rabbi, one of my rabbis who actually ordained me as a rabbi, Rabbi Berkowitz, used to say to me, people care more about a paper cut than they do about the state of, of the Jewish people. And sadly, it's sometimes true, you know, a little bit of personal pain stings us and I think we have to see that as our personal pain, but that's a journey. Can I ask you about your organization, Mickey? Whatever you want. What's what? So Mikimi is an organization that was set up. Um, the, the goal is just to provide some support and relief to people who have suffered the bereavement. Um, young people have suffered the loss of a parent, father or mother. And we do trips together. We have a magazine, a sort of private magazine between ourselves. And there's gifting and there's stuff involved. And it's really about just creating a, a, a social circle, a community of people who can relate to each other's grief. Grief is a very unique emotion. Anyone who's experienced it will understand that. And it's about just creating that camaraderie and that sense of understanding between each other. That's the, the core goal. Oh, so you think you can hear this up or make it particularly because of your... Oh, 100%, 100%. Yeah, 100%, yeah, spot on. Sorry, I, I, so there's actually, you know, we spoke, you mentioned, um, Aaron mentioned beforehand about denial, the five stages of grief. There's actually a book written. Um, so the five stages of grief was written by... Um, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and David Kessler. I don't know if I've got the names right, but I think those are the names. Um, <laughs> I didn't come with notes. No idea. Didn't, didn't know where you were going to go with this, Ellie. Um, and Aaron. Um, and th they basically wrote the book, The Five Stages of Grief. Then I think David, the guy, he lost his son. His son passed away. And he became consumed. You know, when it's personal, that's what we were just saying. It's a whole different journey. He became consumed with that, and he wrote a new book, and it was called The Sixth Stage of Grief, it was called Finding Meaning. And I believe that the healing of any journey, you know, there could be, grief isn't only when someone loses someone. Grief can be losing your sense of self. Let's say someone's bullied in school, or isolated in school, or disrespected by a teacher in public, or by a peer, or by a friend in public. There's a sense of grief, there's a sense of our whole wholeness of self, how we perceive ourselves. And that sort of has been robbed of us. We've, we've lost that and we grieve for that. And it's very often to see the same stages of grief, you know, process within, within everyone's emotion. And he wrote a, a book, the sixth stage, it was called Finding Meaning. And he spoke about how the only way he could actually fully heal, whatever fully heal means, that's a separate discussion, um, was to actually find meaning, to take something meaningful from it. So very much, McKinney is very much... It's something I want to do, but it does bring a sense of healing and, 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 and it pacifies as well. But I think that's true for anyone. I think anyone who's been through a journey or a struggle will often find that when they're able to transform that, to, to make the world a better place, they'll find an inner... You know, when I started to become a, a psychotherapist in my group, there was a lovely guy um, who's actually become a teacher in school. And he said, he said his motivation was that he was bullied in school, he was isolated, and he always wanted... He never felt the support he could have from the teachers and the rabbis in the school. And he felt he wanted to be that person. And that he's actually uh, a teacher in a local school. And I think he's a diamond of a teacher. Um, and I think anyone who goes to his classes is, 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 is lucky. And for him, that's his finding meaning. He went through a trauma and he was able to channel that energy to, to give positivity. Because the energies need expression. And I think that's another thing. And if you can channel them in a positive way, that's so powerful. So all you do is really with these... The, the, the old people say you sit, you sit down, you just hang out, and that's right. And then, and then you just relate to each other. Just yeah, I don't want to go into too much detail. I don't want to. Yeah, I, 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 sure. I want to keep a certain sense of privacy around it. But in a not, I didn't. I didn't leave out. In a nutshell, that's the crux of it. Look, every relationship is complex, and you know it's like you can have a friend that you chill with, but really, within five minutes, you've shared each other's what's going on in your life, and you can have a friend you chill with, and it's about drinking beer or whatever it is, you know, and. I'd like to think there's a deeper dimension to it, and there's you know th th there's a certain healing with it as well, but yeah, that's that's the crux of it. Okay, do you want to discuss um, your? Because you said that you do a shir late at night. So what do you do? Just translate it through translation. Oh, shir, a speech. Um, is it is, is it motivational? Is it okay, so the night shir is. Wouldn't call it motivational, even though probably a motivational speech is sort of my more natural sense of self. Um, my night shear is actually quite an academic shear. 
Shear is, is, is a lecture. Shear literally translated as a lecture. And basically there's a book, a Sefer, a book, which is Sefer in Hebrew, that's called The Code of Jewish Law. And it's basically, you know, it's very interesting to actually understand how Jewish law evolved over time, because there's obviously, there's, there's the, the, the five books of Moses, you know, the Bible, and how that evolves into the current day things that we do. It's a very interesting journey, and we could probably talk about it for two hours, but I'll give it a quick 60 second summary, is basically, um, okay, then he's looking at his crop. I won't go there, but no joking. Okay, whatever. Okay, so we'll go there. Basically, I'll give you up to two minutes. I'll okay, I'll give. I'll try and do this in sixty seconds. There's the written law and the oral law. The oral law was handed down to Moses at Sinai together with the written law, and the oral law was first codified, was first published in a work known as the Mishnah, which eventually evolved into a series of discussions with the rabbis of the time called the Gemara, the Talmud, and ultimately that's more discussion based. The first person who came along and actually codified that into sort of black and white rules and laws and concepts was Maimonides, the Rambam, which was then sort of followed by the Tur, um, which ultimately came through into, which was then sort of recalibrated by Rabbi Yosef Cairo into the code of Jewish law known as the Shulchan Aruch. And on the Shulchan Aruch, which is basically how we should live our day-to-day life, and it's all the Jewish laws that are there in one codified place, there was a rabbi called the Chafetz Chaim who wrote a, a commentary on it called the Mishnah Bura, and that's the nightly shir I do. Um, it's a passion of mine because I find I have this sort of weird sense of self because I've got this really emotional side, but I also have a sense of how I like to say things over clearly. And the, the audience will have to decide if I manage to do that or not. But I thank you, okay, thank you, Ellie. I appreciate. No, I'd like to think that I can summarize things, and you know, also emotionally, I find sometimes you do come across um, um, people who are very um, aware emotionally, but then it's hard for them to actually quantify and codify and clarify where your feelings are at. And I find I have that balance. I loved um, when I my studies in yeshiva in, in the college, and when I studied to be a rabbi, I really enjoyed it. And I felt that the actual job of being a rabbi is 95% being a party planner. And I never <laughs> actually had the chance, I'll tell you about it if you want, but I never actually had the chance to to actually teach the Torah that, I, that I'd spent so long studying and that I love and I cherish and I knew it was important to my father too and and I want to do it so it's a nightly share it's a 15 minute share uh, speech which is relatively short succinct and we literally try to do a page a day so there's a certain consistency and a flow and it's part of a wider global organization called Doshu and it's I'd, I'd like to think it's a lot of fun there's nights when I absolutely can't be bothered there's nights when I have to finish preparing the second before I come in or maybe I don't always prepare and I do my best and it's something that gives me a lot of Rewards a lot of satisfaction. Do you mind if I just bump, bump back to what you said about mental health and religion? You said the, I mean, you mentioned it, uh, I think a lot of people confuse this as well, but regarding mental health and religion, are they separated? I mean, you're not, you shouldn't try and do them together as an objective. Ask me you, more. You, you mentioned something before, like you, can't, you shouldn't really mix when you're trying to, I think you mentioned this, you shouldn't really mix when you're trying to like, have a session with someone while you're trying to think mental health and religion because they're completely different. Okay, so I don't remember discussing it, but I'm happy to discuss. So we're discussing mixing mental health with religion. Cool. So I, I, look, for each person, I would say this, each person in each situation is individual. As a mental health professional, I have a responsibility to my client to absolutely not bring religion into it. I'm not trained as a religious mental health professional. Um, although my master's degree specifies in Jewish education, which has a lot of, it was very interesting to see the blend between Jew- Jewish concepts and psychology and how they blend, and it's also so interesting to see how so many, I would say, almost up? very much so. Yeah. I would actually share something interesting. Eight out of ten of the fathers of psychology, if you like, are Jewish. It's fascinating, literally. And, and that's got to be some connection between that. Um, but I would still say, as a therapist, a psychotherapist, when I have a client in the room, my responsibility to him is entirely emotional-based, nothing to do with religion. If he wants and if he's comfortable, I will bring, you know, bring religion into the room. But I've had clients, I've had clients who are not comfortable with me saying the word Hashem. You know, sometimes I, um, uh, as a religious Jew, sometimes I'll say Baruch Hashem as a favorable speech, which means bless be God or please God. I would say that. And this comfortable, this client said to me, I'm not comfortable with you using the word God. Now, if he's correct in his space, ethically or not, is not really the topic of conversation. I'm happy to be flexible, and I chose when I was with that client, I wouldn't even mention the word Hashem, because my responsibility as a mental health practitioner is entirely independent of my responsibilities as a religious Jew and as a rabbi, which I'm qualified as. In my personal life, I see them both deeply intertwined. I see, I, I, I see mental health and religion 
as a, as a mesh in every step of the way. As uh, as as a mental health professional, do you think people should mix it when you're doing it? I really believe that each person has their journey, their life journey, and that's mental health related, spiritually related. Um, and I think it, I I don't want to give a general answer because each person has their journey, and there could be someone who's at a place where he wants to deal with his emotions, but he's not ready to deal with his religious religiosity and it could be a person who wants to just be religious and doesn't want to have to deal with his mental health <laughs> you get, you've never heard of that before <laughs> there's people on either side of the coin but I I would recommend each individual finding it yeah in my heart of hearts I would like to think um, I can only relate to my journey ultimately my journey they are intertwined so back to your point but I just want to like Go on the point about education, uh, about mental health within the schools because you were in college when you're, you did you go back to college when you fa- after your father? Yeah. And how did, did you think college handled it well? Yeah. Um, in all honesty, to be fair, yes. I think I think look, we're going back sixteen years. Times were different. Emotional awareness was different. I had a rabbi there. His name was Rabbi Tzvi Baxt. He's actually moved to Israel and he remained my rabbi for the till today. I'd still call him. It's funny. I find I end up calling him whenever I come to big decisions. Um, I loved him uh, still I think he's an amazing person um, could have been a big psychologist if he wants to he chose to be a rabbi now just to clarify in yeshiva in, in the college there's different types of rabbis there were some rabbis who were there just to teach you sort of more law if you like the concept and there were other rabbis who were there for your spiritual and emotional well-being he was what's called the mashkiach he was there for my spiritual and emotional well-being and um, he was amazing he was there for me and um I remember, I remember going to speak to him a few times about it, and I felt, I felt he was there and he was supportive. Was he kind of like a mentor to you? Yeah, he was like a mentor. He was there for me. Like everyone makes mistakes and stuff, but he was pretty decent. He did a fantastic job. And look, I think the proof of the pudding is in the eating, and I, I want to stay connected with him. That obviously shows that I felt safe in his presence, and I, I respected and appreciated what he'd given to me. Generally, in schools or in colleges, or do you think? They're properly equipped to, well, just just generally, not even special circumstances like with you, but just generally, do you think they're properly equipped to deal with teenagers' mental health? Oh, loaded question, Ellie. Definitely not. Definitely <laughs> not. Um, again, I don't want to generalise. I'm not trying to be diplomatic. I'll let you generalise if you want. The honest answer is, I think we're coming a long way and we're doing better than we have done, and I still think there's a long way to go. That's the honest answer, and I think mental health is so complex and it's so it's infinite it's infinite you know we could talk about emotions and feelings all day we could you know you've both seen emotionally emotionally aware people and and, and I enjoy talking about mental health we could talk about mental health for hours do I think they're on the money no I think every school should be having a designated therapist you know pastoral care I think there's a long way to go but I'll give credit that we've come a long way schools are with tight budgets you know I find parents often want to just moan when the schools get it wrong but you know they're not willing to to pay the way or to be there to help them get it right it's more about it's difficult as a parent you know I know as a parent when my kids are suffering or struggling you don't know what to do with yourself and it's it's it's, it's very interesting emotions actually to to come across as a parent because you know especially when you deal with clients or clients parents it's very easy to tell them oh just be unconditional and then when it's yours it's not so easy you know um so the, the, the short answer to your question is I think there's a way to go but I, I think it's important to respect I, I like to stand up anytime a, a teacher or, or a rabbi or an educator in the school comes into the room stand up for them because they've got a rough job <laughs> I'm not saying they're all doing it well but they've got a rough job I make an effort whenever someone in my room tells me a certain educator or teacher gave them an encouragement I send a text to that teacher every single time I get a text back you don't know how I needed that. Just Every single time. Yeah. And I just wonder from the client's perspective, is that okay? I never tell them who. Oh, okay. Yeah. Would never say who. Never say who. They're always curious. Can't say. Never say. But I tell they, the client. They, they really enjoy I tell the. Actually. I ask the client, even though I don't really need to, because there's no way of them knowing one of forty people they're teaching that year. Yeah. But I'll, as correctness, I'll say, is it okay if I send a text? They always say to me, with my name. I'm like, no, no, no. Obviously, anonymously. You know how you know there's a there's a trust and a therapeutic alliance, and. Um, they, why should they bother them? Every single teacher or rabbi has said to me, I needed that, like, I needed that, like, you know, like a, as if I was, uh, you know, starving for it. It's a very thankless job, education, and it's a difficult job. 
know, I, I tried out, I was going to teach earlier on in my life a regular class, you know, daily, and I'm thankful I didn't. I'd like to do more in the schools. I go in for assemblies and stuff like that. I'd like to go into the schools more because I think there is a lot I can do. And it's, again, the matter of balancing out and trying to juggle your time and ability and, you know, so it's um, just, yeah, just regarding edu education and um, that they could be better for mental health. That's one way, way you, you give them advice that they could do it with low cost, with a low budget. What impact did you have? Right. So, as a mental health practitioner, um, I get triggered from the question because you're asking how to do it low cost. You know, when there's a life and death involved or when there's something serious when it comes to finance, no one's asking for low cost. They're, 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 they're happy to invest. So I'm a bit triggered thinking, hey, why here is there suddenly low cost? I know, I know, Eddie, that you respect mental health. But I mean that in general, when it comes to education, everyone's looking for low cost. You know, your, your teachers are with your kids for more hours a day than you're with them. That's a fact. They're there with their kids for almost eight hours a day. You get to see your kids three hours a day, or if, if that. Most fathers see them a lot less. I'm talking even mothers also. You know, 45 in the morning screaming to get dressed and a bit of breakfast and then... <laughs> You know, an hour at home while they hope they're playing with their kids, and then you know, twenty minutes bedtime, get to bed and stuff, and you know, whatever. Like, if we really value them, we should want, you know. And I actually know some places in America where there has been a transformation that the, the educators are being paid better money, you know, and that's how it should be. I think these are the people we entrust with our children, you know, and 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 and, and I think that's critical. And I think when it comes to mental health too, mental health is so important. I think. So I'll answer your question because I'll try and answer every question. Before you do, I think we should start off a poll here, like people that start that's willing to pay more, starting with you for the education. <laughs> I was, was realising that I'm digging a hole for myself. Um, I'm realising I'm digging a hole for myself. Um, You're gonna get the principal coming around to your house later. He'll be knocking on for an extra in the bills. I get, I get that. Yeah, do you know what? Would you be willing? Yeah, if it, um, would Theoretically, if if if, if there was greater investment, I, look, I do. I I I don't want to say who and what. I pay privately for a lot of extra support for my kids, stuff, money that I can't afford. So I think that's the answer to your question. You know, I pay I pay for my kids to, to see mentors and stuff or therapists, whichever it is. And I think it's important. And I've I've seen the I've seen the change. You know, one of my kids was seeing someone, <coughs> and the person said that they're good, they should finish. And and um, I spoke to my kid, and she didn't want to say I love going. It was a fortune of money per hour for me. It was a fortune, and she loved it. I kept her there. She's she's still going. I think it's a good thing. Why do we need to wait till there's a problem to give support? Why why can't she have the antidote prior to, to, to suffering again? That's great wisdom. Everyone should go to therapy. I tell my wife when I'm rich, I'm gonna go to therapy every day. <laughs> I I listen. I'm not embarrassed to say I've been to therapy many times, and I. I go periodically, that means sometimes you get a trigger or something in your life that, that's heavy and talk it through. Like like I say, I feel really blessed. I have you know amazing an amazing mother. My mother is the wisest person I know. Um, I have Baruch Hashem, a lovely wife. I have um, brothers and sisters and, and who are there for me. Um, and I know I could pretty much call any single one of them and say I need to talk. I don't know if I always want to burden them all, but... And, and, and they'll make time for me. You know, I spent time with my brother this morning and I had something heavy on my heart and I felt so much better after I'd spent an hour with him. We went for a jog together. I'd like to think he feels the same and I'd like to think they feel the same. And I think I'm going to come back to that and say that, you know, the greatest pain sometimes is when a person is feeling isolated and alone. And I can just, I beg of you, whoever's listening and is feeling isolated, please try to reach out. And don't, even if you get rebuffed, from the first 10, 20, 50 people, please try again because there are people out there who want to be kind and find that person. You, you deserve, each person deserves someone to talk to, someone to make them feel cared for, someone to remind them of the light they have within. And, 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 and if people don't have that, it's a travesty. And I, I, would, I would actually make a plea if whoever's listening to this, think, think around in your life, in your social circle. Is there someone that perhaps you could I'm gonna. I'll shout out to my wife here. We have a relative, who, um, who unfortunately her parents have both been taken into care home, and she lives alone. My wife messages her every single Friday. Where were you for Shabbos? Every single Friday. You know, I remember as a kid sometimes my parents used to invite a lot of guests. I was like, can we have one week without guests? You know, I wanted that space, and that's a difficult balance. You don't want your kids to be burdened. It's a whole different discussion. You know, as a family, we actually give. As a family, you don't have a car, so we give them a ride to school every day. And my kids recently were asking me. You know, is it a bit much every day and whatever? 
um, you know, can we have our space once? And it's important to juggle that and get the right balance. But I'm not talking about when it comes every day in burden. Think, everyone who's listening, please, think in your social circle. Is there anyone in your social circle or around that you may be lonely, that may need a kind word? I, I was dealing with someone who was suffering from severe depression and someone made an effort, they were making a wedding and they wrote him a handwritten, would love to see you there and sent it to him. He, the entire session, he was pulling out the card every two minutes. Look at this, look at this. Can you see? It must have taken the guy a minute. It was like, hope to see you at the wedding. He must have pulled it out. And, and I know someone else, he showed it to you. Do you know the, the impact? And it's funny, I didn't mention the whole one kind word concept. And I know Eddie's aware because Eddie managed it and helped me, helped me set it up. Um, but yeah, one kind word is very much a raison d'etre of mine. I really do believe you cannot underestimate the power of reaching out to someone. There are, everyone needs a kind word. I, I make an effort when I go to big events, corporate events or public events with the big educators and rabbis and speakers, I try to go over to them and say thank you. And, and each one of them I can see in the eye how they need it. We all need it. I need it. You need it. We all need that. And if we could all just start a better cycle of, 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 of giving each other that, that affirmation, why can't we? And it would save lives. It would save lives and it would, it would, it would impact lives in a sense. You know, some people sometimes the living are dead in their hearts. It would save it would save emotional lives and physical lives. Yeah, you spoke about... Um, Do it, whoever's listening. Call someone now, text them. I don't care if you stop listening to the podcast, sorry. Yeah. Just for a minute. Then listen right back yeah, up. Yeah, my phone's gonna... text on. <laughs> yeah, right. there are helplines as well. You spoke before... There's helpline. The helpline's yeah. fantastic. And you they spoke... actually sponsored one of the They sponsored so. one of them. The helpline... Let's see if they sponsor this one. The helpline, Israel Hassel is a diamond. Shia Halford and whoever else is involved there. Eddie's dad there. Eddie's dad. Out. Quality people. Israel is... I love Israel. He's one of the few people around who, whenever he calls me, I think, what have I done for self-care recently? Because he's always telling me to look after myself. And those are the people the world needs more of, yeah. Well done, Alistair. Well done. Um, to this. Okay. <laughs> uh, you spoke about uh, going on a jog with your brother. How important is exercise and diet to uh, mental health? Oh, it's <laughs> so important. I cannot, you know, I, this sounds really weird, but not weird. I, I do an app, it's called Couch to 5K. Um, it's a great app, it's NHS, it's a free app. Download it and do it. Now, they've actually modified the app and I'm very upset um, because there used to be a feature, before you go on the jog, you have to choose from five smiley faces. You know, you see these customer service mm -hmm. things, like a red face and then like a yeah. yellow, orange, yellow, green, yeah. whatever. And it says, how do you feel? And I can tell you this, I must have been now to date, I know I don't look it, but I must have been on couple hundred jogs you know I've been doing this for three four years I when I'm in my zone I do it what three times a week and like now I'm doing it once every three months no. <laughs> Listen, you've got to eat healthy too and for sure food makes a huge impact you know like uh, there's, there's a lady in town called Sarah Zvara Kreisler and one of her specialities are understanding different foods how they impact our emotional system you know mushrooms can create fatigue chocolate can is not healthy if someone's suffering from anxiety, even though I seem to always feel better after eating it. Right? <laughs> I guess it's the long term, right? But um, exercise is so critical, and they basically ask you before you jog to choose. And every single jog, I choose that red face. Every single jog, I can't do it anymore. I wish it was yeah. there because they've switched, changed the app. I choose that red face, and every single jog afterwards, I choose yeah. the green one. And you know, it's not easy to get out there and exercise, but I would say even just to go for a walk, you know, the sun, the weather's nice. I mean, I, I don't mind the rain, but just go out. There's so much green around here. There's so many spaces. There's Heaton Park, there's the, the cliffs. There's, there's, um, there's just, there are lots of green places around it. Get out. Don't, even 15, 20 minutes. You know, I have my, I have a pair, I can take, I have a spare pair of trainers I used to have in the office. Just be able to, in the middle of the day, to get out, put the trainers on, just go for a walk for 15, 20 minutes. It's so critical. It's so necessary. It's so healthy. For your physical and emotional health, it, I can't recommend it enough. I wish I did it more. Because most people don't really talk about that side of it. <coughs> no, no, they don't. Um, and it's something I want to try and, you know, with the right different opportunities, uh, make people more aware of. It's something I actually had a discussion with your father about, and we'll see further about it. But I think it's something that's critical to, to you know, to have that awareness, you know. And, and I think it's important. I think, you know, Jewish life, you know, is often a lot of eating involved, and I think it's important. It doesn't say anywhere it says there's a mitzvah and a terror of a high by having to look after your, your physical well being. And I think we sometimes focus on the eating. Always. <laughs> yeah. Especially Shabbos and Yom Tov. Shabbos and Yom Tov, yeah, you know. 
all the way. Listen, I, I love a good chant and keshka and kala and grief and I take it all. I, I, I haven't met a calorie or a piece of food I don't really like, so I told you I'm very non judgmental. <laughs> I think most of us are with you there. Yeah, you mentioned going on a walk is super important. The other day I was having a bit of a rough day, I was all in my head. I went for a 15 minute walk and it just cleared everything up. It's one of the most important things. Yeah. I'll just share, just because you're talking about emotional health resources, this is something I've become attuned to, and you can get them on YouTube, Spotify, any platform, SoundCloud, whatever, Apple, Play, whatever they call it, um, a meditation. And it's not for everyone, and it takes getting used to and accustoming yourself to, but I'll often sometimes lie in bed at night, and I've got triggers and stresses that are causing anxiety and stress, and I can't relax. You know, you can't go to a massage every single day. Maybe again, if you can, you're great, but you know, and I can't have a hot bath Probably every single night. Get a massage every day. I'd like to find out. <laughs> um, try me. <laughs> and obviously, everything in moderation. But you know, even a hot bath. You hop in the shower, but a hot bath can unwind. You can't do a hot bath every night. It takes time and whatever. Um, and um, I've been listening to meditations, and you just literally type in Google guided sleep meditation, yeah. and it's just a soothing voice, and it it talks you through the process. And you talk about person-centered therapy. It's the voice that's really inside your mind that is telling you it's okay to calm down and, and you need this. And it's just a very soothing meditation. It helps with your breathing. Breathing is another whole world and it can help to unwind you and have a deeper sleep. And there's different types of meditation. Sometimes, like for me, I, I wouldn't be able to do that. I've tried to. I'm happy like you've five, tried. 15 different apps. I'm, I'm happy you've happy. tried. At least you've tried. Um, and now, what I would consider meditation is just go outside, just walking. 10 minutes, usually I listen to stuff, like Bernie was talking about singing, just, just stop listening, just appreciate and listen, and not think about anything, it's very hard not to think about anything, just try to clear your mind, and just appreciate the nature. So I love listening to that, because I actually don't mind, and this is again, I'm coming to, as a psychotherapist, I am not looking to give a specific answer to specific people, that's why I'm quite careful not to generalise an emotional level. I'm so happy for you that you explored and chose not, that's a very healthy process, my, my role, I was wanting to know that people are exploring. You found what works for you, that's amazing. Meditations don't talk to you, I can totally get that. You know, I'm always, whenever I introduce a client to a guided meditation, I'm always inhibited. Still today, I think, is he just going to think I'm this weirdo freak? And I won't do it on the first couple of sessions, so may I have a chance to realize that I'm a normal guy, or whatever that means. I guess that's their judgment. But once they do, I'll say, look, there's this tool I think could support. Do you want to explore? And, and meditation is not for everyone. Meditation is not for everyone. I will say I had the privilege to meet a wonderful fellow. His name is Rabbi Ali Melech Goldberg, and he runs an organization called Kids Kicking Cancer. Really interesting guy. If you get him on the podcast. Right. Uh, well, not quite KKK. Um, amazing, amazing fellow. Amazing fellow. Whew, I remember interviewing him. Really interesting. Um, and he's very into brief breath work, and he's got something called the Breathe Break. And it's a three-minute audio. You can Google it, the Breathe Break, from Rabbi Elimelech Goldberg. And it's literally a three-minute um, thing where he guides you through breathing just to calibrate your breathing, to, 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 to re-settle you know, your breathing. And if, you know, if you're not into long, waffly meditation, sometimes that can support. But if a walk works for you, great. I, I, love, I love being in the nature. You know, I love it. And you know, Whenever I can, if I can meet outside walking in the park, I'll do it. It's... It's where life is. Yeah, I think there's a lot of misconceptions about meditation. A lot of people think you need to cross your legs and you put your arms out like that and your back up straight. It's really not that. You could do it lying down, you could do it anywhere. Yeah. Um, when meditating, Eddie said that he, that just now, that he tries to not think of anything. But when I meditate, I do the opposite. I try to think of everything. And my mind's just racing. I just let all the questions come into my mind. I don't think about anything. I Kind of just, let's just think about everything, if you know what I mean. Uh, is, is there a right way to do it? It's beautiful, a really beautiful question. Um, and I would say, similar to, in line with what I've said previously, is look, the way Ali described it, it's actually, it's actually, you know, you talk about, I was talking before, how Judaism and psychology are intertwined. So there's a concept which pre predated therapy called hashkata, literally translated as silencing the mind, which is very much what Ellie does, the sound of what Ellie does. 
I'm not trying to. <laughs> <laughs> no, like, yeah, no, yeah it, like it's, it, it's yeah. a very powerful. You'd probably enjoy reading. I've got a, a book on it, actually, a sh- small book. I like small books. I think they're the best often. Kind of short videos. Short videos, okay. It's <laughs> also audible now and stuff. Audible, yes, yeah, people. I love that. Yes. Put it on 1.5. 100%. You know, so it's about Ashkata primarily. Um, a friend of mine, um, Harm of Arya Eaton, gave it to me. Um, it's written by a Chabad fellow, and it was fantastic read about that kind of meditation. Um, there was other elements to it as well, but that was the, the, the preliminary concept. And then I can actually, on a personal level, I can relate. I can sort of relate to both. And you know, someone told me a beautiful idea um, how in the Haggadah, on Pesach, we read the Haggadah. It's what we read on the Passover festival for the Jewish people. It talks about the four sons, the wise son, the wicked son, the simple son, and um, the son who doesn't know how to ask. And I heard once this wonderful idea from a rabbi. He said, they're not four different people. It's... Before, it could all be the same person just going through different moments and different moods and I think that's so powerful so we confine ourselves to being in one way and um, I think not only is it okay to meditate differently I think it's okay for the same person to meditate differently I don't like reading let's say weekly publications my wife always asks me why there's great content and I say I feel right now I'm in the mood of reading a mental health book right now I'm in the mood of exploring my anger right now I'm in the mood of exploring something religious I don't want someone to decide what I need to read. Does that make sense? I know yeah, there's... Yeah, I've on my, on my um, Google Chrome, I watch YouTube on Chrome, on the app. I've got like 10 different uh, tabs open. On, just on the YouTube website. All that has different websites for different moods. Love that. Love that. So, to talk about that, yeah, I am the type of guy who does need to process... Definitely, my sort of natural state would be more in line with what Aaron said. Probably because I've got the same name. But no, um, might be. yeah, it might be. It might be. You know, a name. I do believe a name can have an impact on character. But a discussion for another time. Um, and Aaron's a fantastic. Penny's are okay. Yeah. <laughs> average, average. Average. Um. So, um, yeah. So I, I do like to process all my thoughts. It could be sometimes annoying as a spouse and as a friend. I'm aware. Someone who needs to process, and you know, I'd like to think my wife's learned. I just need to talk it through, and then I'll be okay. And you know, that's fine. Um, I like to press things, but sometimes I want to just switch off. I don't want to know. I like to switch off. Talk about switching off. Switching off your phone is so necessary. Um, again, I'm not perfect, but I really try to switch off my phone for two hours when I'm home in the evening. I two really, hours? Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. At least you try that. I try to. <laughs> try for two minutes. On, 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 in an honest level, it sometimes happens that way. Most often it's off for half an hour to an hour. It's still really good. Yeah, but I feel like this when you take the time to zone into your kids, even if it's a few minutes. When, when it's undiluted attention, you know, I had a father recently who had a, a client who wanted me to call his father. He didn't feel comfortable approaching his father himself. He wanted me to approach his father about their relationship. I tried, again, I don't like doing that. I'm very much trying to empower people to take responsibility and work their things out themselves. That's just how, that's my modality. That's how I work. I tried to encourage him, but it was it was just before a festival, and he very much wanted it to happen, and I I obliged, but I'm not totally awkward. Um, and I called the father, and, and I had this conversation with the father, obviously with the son's permission, the son's request, to be honest. And I called the father, and I you know, and the, I told the father the son feels you, you, you haven't got time for him, and the father got very frustrated, and he said, "What do you think? I have to make money, I have to earn a business. What does the son think? He's going to just have money for all the things he wants, and and, and I should just be around there to, to, every five minutes for him to nag me." And I could sense that, you know, there was a frustration there. And so he says, I listen, I didn't feel, you know, sometimes you have to perceive when, when you know, when there's who to talk to. I was just listening. And, and the father said to me, I want to hear what you have to say. What do you recommend? And I said to him, you tell me, again, I try to empower people, how long do you think you should spend with your son a week? And the father said to me, 15, 20 minutes. I'm not judging. I'm, I don't have an issue with it. Everyone should, again, everyone has to have their, you know, this. I said, that's fine. 15, 20 minutes, you want to go to it? I will. I said, do it with your phone off. And I could see he, he like, gulped for a moment. <laughs> and it took him a minute, yeah, like... Phone off? What's whatever. That? And then he realised what it sounds like. You know, can you give your own child 20 minutes a week with your phone off? And I haven't heard back from him. Now... It should be a good thing. I'm hoping it's a good thing. <laughs> I haven't heard back from him. I, I think sometimes we underestimate the power of a small, focused time. We think... You know, there needs to be quantity and numbers and it's one of the tricky things of social media that that, that, that we're quantified by numbers and, 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 and I like to to quantify genuine meaningful relationships which are so hard to quantify. I mean, I'm on social media a lot but I mean, 
since I started the podcast, since we uh, Aaron and I started to take the podcast more seriously, I, I think I've enjoyed and learned um, the appreciation of having a conversation with like Chloe. Yeah. First I'm time, like that. since I started the first time I've had a conversation. No, I was joking, but like, or like a proper conversation with an hour and a half that you've had. It's yeah. massive, and then I started implementing it more and more. Like yesterday, uh, the other day, I had a conversation with someone three hours on my phone for five minutes of it. Never done that before. Well, not really, but you get what I'm saying. It's, it's, it's changes everything. Yeah, and I, I look. I get the need for social media. I'm not naive. I get, I get the world we live in. I have personally tried to stay off social media more than anything for that reason, for because of my mental health and my emotional well-being. And I'd consider myself a confident, secure person. But I don't want that judgment every day. I don't want to feel judged by how many likes my post got. And I just don't want to feel that. It takes its toll. And I would just say to anyone on social media, and that's probably everyone. <laughs> I would just say Never try, on try. Pardon? Never on social Never media. Never on social media. <laughs> I would say just try to remember you're in a call. Try to. What do you mean by that? Try to make sure that there's something in your life, a person in your life, who reminds you that you're worthwhile, not because of your success in social media, because of your success in who you are. And I think if you if you're able to maintain that integrity and that clarity, you'll be able to hopefully weather the storm, which is a storm I'm not ready for just yet. It's very hard to do that. Yeah. It's hard. It's hard. Life is life is a challenge. It's it's a challenge, and it gets very hard because the power and the reach of social media. You know, I'll come in today. I recognize it. I recognize. It. I think it's important that you want the message to get to the masses, so you, you can't have the cake and eat it. And that's why I recognize the needs, and it's it's a tricky balance. I just I wish for I wish for everyone to just recognize their inner worth. You know, if I could go and give every single person a hug and just let them feel, you know, I think hugs are great, by the way. Obviously, not to clients. Um, I was actually in a course at the CPD, did a professional development course the other week, and they were discussing this case about whether when the therapist gave the client a hug, and I was like, I don't even believe you could do that. And obviously, it's not something I would do. I don't recommend any physical contact on a professional level, but a friend, you know, I read somewhere in one of the Chicken Soup for the Souls, a healthy person needs 12 hugs a day. I, I believe in it. I'll probably have 12 hugs this year. So, that's my recommendation. Okay, I think what, related to that, what, what, what's like a tip you would give, especially to teenagers, or to uh, people around that, to help them with the mental health, to help with depression? Um, not obviously, you can't give a specific tip to everyone. So what's like a tip that, that could be generalised? It's a really good question, and it's a really powerful question, and it's a question I wish I could bottle and give to everyone um, you know the, the tricky thing about self-esteem and self-confidence and inner worth the tricky thing as a parent even is it's not something you can gift someone you can buy them a guitar you can buy them a car you can buy them a house you can buy them a keyboard you can't buy someone's inner worth inner worth is the one thing we have to discover for ourselves it's something we have to and each individual who's ever going to feel self-worth will have discovered it themselves. They'll have had a moment where they were able to connect with their inner core, and you know, if they're a Jew, their inner neshama, a spark, that piece of godliness inside. And I would just say, search for, search for your inner light. I, I can't give it to you, I wish I could, but every person has to discover that within themselves. But when you come across a moment where you recognize your inner self, you recognize what you have to offer, Offer, do stuff, don't be afraid to offer support. You know, I, I, I'll share this. One of my daughters was really struggling at one point emotionally, and I didn't know what to do. I was at a loss. You can't be a therapist for your child, it doesn't work. Um, I didn't know what to do, and I did a social experiment with her. I said, to her, We're going to walk down this patch of road, and we're going to smile at every single person we see. I said, Don't do this one, I'm not with you. <laughs> and Every single person smiled back at her. I can't guarantee that result to everyone. But what do you think that did for her? It made her recognize she has the power to smile at people and get them to smile. A smile's a powerful thing. I can't gift everyone the self-esteem. I can't gift it to myself. I, I, it's a, again, it's a life's work. I'd like to think I'm in a good place a lot of the time, and I struggle with it. I'm quite open and raw and emotional about it. Search for your inner light. My message to anyone listening is search for that inner light. And when you find it, cherish it. Um, savor it, because that inner light has the ability to ignite everything and, and, and make so many things work. 
Just ask the last question to this podcast. Why aren't you better? Why aren't I better? Um, I'm processing the question. <laughs> Why aren't I better? Um, my response is, I make many mistakes and I do lots of things wrong, but I am better. I am better. I, I think the answer to your question is, I am better. I'm growing. I'm making mistakes. And sometimes I'm heading backwards, but I am better. I am, I'm, I'm comfortable in myself and I'm making mistakes, doing things wrong, but I am better. And I think everyone's better on their journey. That was a brilliant response. That was a brilliant response. Uh, thanks for coming on, Andy. Thank you, Andy. That was amazing. I have so much respect for what you do. Thank you. And it's ended. Thank you. Thank you, guys. That was a great conversation. Thank you so much.